I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded back in 2003. And as an opera fan, I have to say that this was one of the great thrills of my long career at WGTD, the opportunity to speak with an opera singer that I had deeply admired for many, many years, Shirley Verrett. The occasion of this interview was the publication of her memoir called I Never Walked Alone. That interview was actually quite lengthy, too long, in fact, to air on the morning show in unedited fashion. So what you are about to hear is the complete interview, which has never been aired before. Ahead of the interview itself, I want to give you a brief sampling of the beautiful singing of Shirley Verrett. This is a moment from one of her most famous roles, Delilah, from Camille Sanson's opera, Samson and Delilah. And this is the final refrain of the most famous aria from that opera, Mon Coeur S'ouvre Ta Voix. Shirley Barrett. This is from a BBC program recorded in the late 1960s. And I can scarcely put into words how excited I am to be speaking today with one of my very favorite singers, a much-honored, much-beloved singer on both the opera stage and recital stage, Shirley Verrett, a long, distinguished career which took her to many of the world's great concert halls and opera houses. And uh, she has recently sat down to write an autobiography which tells the story of her remarkable career. The book is, is called I Never Walked Alone, the Autobiography of an American Singer, co-written with Christopher Brooks, published by Wiley. And we have Shirley Verrett with us for the next few minutes to uh, talk about her amazing life and career. I want to mention right off the bat that uh, Shirley Verrett, you sang 
in Kenosha, Wisconsin, where yes, our radio station is located. Do you re- recall that? I remember that. You know, I can't recall the whole or any of that, but I know that in the early days of my career, I know Kenosha was one, uh, Madison, and I, I did quite a bit in your state. I think uh, uh, for the Kenosha Symphony, you sang the Brahms Alto Rhapsody, or that oh. is... I see. That oh, is what I've been. I had forgotten. That is that is what I've been told. It's I was two years old at the time, I think. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I, I have spoken to several people who still very fondly remember that uh, performance, which uh, is over forty years ago. Yes, yes. One of the things that is, of course, truly remarkable about your your career is uh, has something to do with your background, your parents' religious background, and, yes. and the way that that kind of. Uh, uh, well, came into some conflict, if we want to say, with yes. the life which you ended up uh, living. First of all, tell us a little bit about your parents and their musical interests, but their religious background, which uh, made some of this a bit complicated. Well, it, um, my mother's family and my father's family, both actually, had come from a Catholic family. And uh, just before I was born, my parents joined the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And uh, they were converts, so you know what that means. When you leave one thing to go up to another, you really become very, very strict in the new thing. And uh, I was brought up in a very, very strict uh, religious home. And, of course, the Seventh-day Adventists at that time, and I think to this moment, uh, do not believe in, in opera singing or things like that. You know what I mean? Because they feel that it's worldly and it's of the world and, uh, and so on. So I had, this was kind of a barrier uh, in the career to a certain extent when I was told that I did indeed have an operatic voice when I went to the Juilliard School of Music and sang for the the panel before uh, being truly accepted into the school. This is where opera popped its head up. (laughs) And it was at that time that I had a lot of very, very deep thinking to do. Uh, should I not do the opera when I believe so, 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 how can I say, so deeply in the great music that uh, the, uh, the opera composers, like Verdi and Massenet, and you name them, you know, Bizet, uh, Puccini, all of them, was it really against any real law that God had, I felt that God had given these men and these women in some cases, uh, for song uh, writing, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, this, the wonderful, how can a gift hmm. of, of, of writing this incredible music, and I didn't see anything wrong with that. And so after a long struggle with myself, lots of prayers, I decided to actually become an opera singer, but did not really call myself an opera singer until about six years into the career. Interesting. I was doing uh, certain operas. I began singing Carmen and Amneris and things like that. But I didn't really call myself an opera singer until I had made my debut at the Royal Opera House. You'd done more uh, recitals and concerts and, and that actually, sort of thing. And actually, that was my, this is what my father, my parents were really great, though. I mean, you wanted to know a bit about my parents. They were really, really, really very much involved, my father especially with the voice part, my mother with the memorization part, because I learned a lot of poetry with my mom, and I would recite a lot, and so she found out I had a wonderful uh, talent for memorization. My father 
when I sang in church one day, my mother had taught me the song, actually, uh, and I sang a solo, and my dad then took over, and he protected my voice all of the years before I really did any kind of, uh, what can I say, formal study. And having said all of that, and having said that the church frowned on opera, my parents were were so very, very proud and knew that I was going to have some kind of career. I was told this one uh, from the age of about five, that I was going to follow in the footsteps of Marin Anderson uh, and uh, Dorothy Maynard and Roland Hayes and so on. And when it came to the opera, when I began to sing in the opera, I have to tell you that my, my mother and father would fly they were at my Met debut. They were at my Spoleto debut when I did my first Carmen in Italy. Uh, then they went to Europe and to, to see me because they loved me very, very much. And even though they did not... How can I say this? This is very interesting. It was the love of parents ah. over, the, over the, the, the rules of the church. Uh, the, because my mother, especially, whenever she would go to an opera uh, of mine, and hear me sing, she would go home and say, she would pray and say, Dear God, forgive me, but I have to do this. <laughs> I had to do this. This is, this is my daughter. You know, we had to go and hear her sing. Very good. Uh, how long so a wait was, was it? very, very good for me because even though it was frowned on in the church, my parents were really, they really were always in my corner. So they were there even from that Covent Garden debut? Uh, no, they were not. They did not fly to Covent Garden. Hmm. Uh, they flew... Uh, to Italy when I did my first Carmen. I see. And they flew to uh, to New York when I made my Met debut. And, of course, when I would sing at the San Francisco Opera and so forth because they're in California. So it's not that years went by before they finally sort of brought themselves to do it. I mean, really, no, from the start no. of your opera career, they were willing to do this for you. Oh, yes, they were. Wonderful. They were. And they always were that way. My father, I, I remember... Uh, uh, a school, because I went to parochial school and so forth, and it was a school in this little town that my father had his business in, in California. He was a builder, a contractor, general contractor, building homes and churches and things like that. And I didn't like the school in the little town and talked to him about, uh, you know, the possibility of me going about 10 miles away to another school. And he said yes. I, I, there are little things like that in my life that really were very, very big things. Hmm. Because even with my daughter, uh, there was a time that she didn't want to go to a particular school, very fine school in New York, because it was an all-girl school, a really great all-girl school. But she enjoyed and had a better time when she went to um, a school that had, you know, both sexes and so forth. She had a greater time. She she felt more comfortable. And I must say, we were not as advanced as my parents were, because they said, look, if you're not really happy in the place that you are, then we will let you go to where you think you will be happy. And that was quite wonderful thinking at that time, because both my parents did not, my, I, my mother did not uh, finish the 12th grade. Hmm. She went to 10 or 11, and so forth, but very, 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 very bright and very intuitive uh, parents, you know, without the psychology books and so forth to help them. Right. Yes. We're speaking with Shirley Verrett about her autobiography called I Never Walked Alone. Uh, you grew up in New Orleans. That's and, right. Uh, and I do need to ask you what 
what the experience was like and what sort of experience you had as a young person with racism. How aware of, of, of that were you as far as your own personal life? Well, I was very, we, my, my siblings and I were very aware of it because my father was always, and mother, but my father was the main one who spoke about it. And this is the one reason, the great reason that he wanted us to move and to go. He was on his way to taking us to uh, Seattle, Washington. He had fallen in love with that place. But we ended up in California, and he did. And he did. He he had always thought that he did not want his children to grow up thinking that they were second-class citizens. So we knew about it. We went to the the, the Seventh-day Adventist parochial school and so forth and so on. And many times we were driven to school, but there were times that we had to get on the buses. Yeah, many times that we did have to get on the buses when my father could not drop us off. Of, my mother could not drop us off at school. And as I remember in those days, that, that we did not have a school bus uh, at that little church in New Orleans. The point was that I did know that when I got on the streetcar, they had these, what do you call them? They were, um, that you put this uh, thing into two holes that said for colored only, and you sat behind that screen. Mm. It wasn't a very big screen. I mean, it was maybe about three inches tall. But we, I did, I did know about that, and I knew about uh, most of the racial things that were going on uh, in the South at that particular time. And my, because not my father told us about it. What he did tell us, though, and something that was really marvelous, he said. He also taught us never go around with a chip on your shoulder. That everything that happens to you, you will blame it on race. He said a lot of times it will be that. But what you've got to do is to try to keep an open mind and uh, so forth. And, of course, this applied to when we moved to California as well. Hmm. But in New Orleans, uh, he did let us know what was going on, and we did find out because we experienced it ourselves. And it was not a pretty thing. Not at all. I must say I was very angry Hmm. as a youngster, but my parents never knew this anger, this Hmm. deep anger uh, that I had inside, why I should be thought of as less of a person because of the color of my skin. Hmm. I had a rage (laughs) inside. And it's only in in years, the recent years, that I've been able to talk about it, you know, in interviews like this Hmm. and so forth. But um, in the end, though, having said all of that, in the end, I was very, very pleased and happy for all of the black the African-American people who did stay and they did do the fight, you know, on top of that, always realizing I, whenever I say that, it was the black uh, people's fight, but there were also many uh, like-minded uh, Caucasians who also joined in the fight, as mm. you know. I mean, it would be very stupid for me to say no. And I'm very happy that that happened. I'm very happy that those people stayed there and did fight, because if we had all left, you know what I mean? It possibly would never have changed. Mm. So, no, I didn't know about it. In a, in a nutshell, I did know about uh, the, the, the laws and so forth of the South. One of the interesting stories you tell comes from 1948, when you were a winner in the first round of a, of a voice competition, and the great baritone John Charles Thomas was the, the primary judge. And one of the things that that victory could have allowed you to do 
was study with one of the century's most renowned singers, oh. and then at that point, teachers, the great Lottie Lehman. Yes. You made a very interesting decision. You decided you were not ready for such a thing, and you turned that opportunity down. I think that says a lot about your character and your courage at that point in time. And do you know, uh, when people uh, ask me about things like that, it's very interesting because I don't know where it all came from. But this is what I try to teach my students now. Try to get to know themselves as well as they can. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't know where all that came from. It was an intuitive, how can I say, an instinctive kind of thing that said to me, you are not ready to, just because you won this, it was kind of on a dare that I even did the audition because I wasn't even ready for that. But I had the voice, and my father said, who always said I could do anything, he said, you can do it, you will win it. And so when I did that first round, let's, let's be fair, it was the first round of that uh, competition, and I was offered this great opportunity, I sat down and I thought very, very carefully about it and said, you know, Dad, you know, Mom, I'm not, not Mom, because I called her Mother all the time. You know, Mother, I'm not ready for this, because I said, I'm, I'm not studying. Uh, I'm doing this just on the, just on um, a God-given voice that, and then Dad's help mm. in helping me, you know, to sing correctly. But I said I am not ready for this, and I think I better not do it. And so I told Mr. Thomas this, and uh, he looked at me for a long time. In the end, I think he was very respectful uh, that I had the courage to say and to know that I was not ready for this kind of person's teaching. Hmm. Well, there's, of course, a lot of young singers who who do not know that and who push things along too quickly. Too quickly. And they get into big trouble because, first of all, my father, this was before my first marriage, and that takes us to another barrier kind of thing because of uh, having a first divo- a divorce in my family. Um, my, uh, talking about the... Uh, my father, I did go to a teacher that I had been led to for about two or three lessons. And after the three lessons, I said to my dad, Dad, don't waste your money. I'm not really ready to buckle down. I'm not ready to really give this my all. I feel that I will have this career that you talk, you and mother talk about all the time. I think so. I think this is going to be my life. But right now, I'm not ready to do this, and you'll be wasting money. And my father did not like to waste money. <laughs> so he took that, and he, he looked at me again, very uh, trying to size me up. What is, what is she thinking? How did she come to this decision? I don't really know. All I knew was that I was not ready to study and to give it my all. When it, the time did come, I did act in another way. Hmm. And I did find voice teacher and so on and so on, and went on from there, right straight ahead. One thing that's interesting that you mention in the book is, as you begin studying with uh, Anna uh, Fitzhugh, am I pronouncing that correctly? That's exactly correct. Uh, that uh, she was throwing all kinds of interesting repertoire at you, a wide range of things. I mean, it's not everybody that's singing the big aria from Cavalleria Rusticana and the Alleluia from Mozart's Exultate Jubilate. I mean, right. So, uh, so that's in. So the the wide range of repertoire, which was such a hallmark of your career, that was really there right from the beginning. It was there from the beginning, and you know how that came about. I think. Uh, let me, I, I, I just go on so much, so if I go too far, just stop me. <laughs> You're doing great. <laughs> but, 
the um, that came from our singing in the family. Uh, my mother was the, was the soprano most of the time when we would sing together, and I would be the mezzo. But if she were in the kitchen or doing something in the house when we were doing the singing on the weekend, uh, I would take over that role. If my br- tent, my a brother who had a beautiful tenor voice was absent, I would take it. So there was no thought of uh, categorizing what voice I really had. My father always wanted me to be a contralto because of Marian Anderson. Oh, yeah. And I always felt that she wasn't really in, in actuality. But the point is that she had her great and wonderful career as a, uh, as a contralto, and this is what he had wanted. But this, uh, my voice said something else. And when I went to Anna Fitzhugh, she found that I had this fantastic, uh, how can I, expansion, uh, extension of, of the voice and so forth. And she began to feel, she said, I feel that you are a soprano. And so she began to give me all these things. A little strange, though, you know, Victor de Halle and Cavalleria uh, uh, and so forth and so on. And the Alleluia was where I found out that I, God had also given me I had come into the world being able to sing um, uh, coloratura because I didn't have to do this before. Right. And she gave me this last uh, part of the the motet to learn, and I took it home, and I could sing it. You know, not greatly at that time, but the voice did move. Hmm. And so this is where I found out about that. So she was wonderful for me that five months that I studied with her before going to New York. You uh, you were a winner on the Arthur Godfrey Arthur Talent Godfrey Scouts. Talent Scouts. That yes. must have been a lot of fun and a great thrill to uh, to enjoy it a success really on was, something like that. It really was. It was Anna Fitzhugh who actually was the, uh, was the reason that I possibly was uh, a winner on that show because, as it turned out, they gave all of us one. There were three or four. Uh, groups and there were different ones, jazz, blah, 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 and we all won. If we had not changed the aria, if she had not suggested that I was supposed to have sung Dichtoira Halla from Tannhäuser on that show, and one day she said to me, I don't think that's going to be a great choice because we there won't be that many. There'll be op- some opera buffs in the, uh, in the audience and so forth, but I doubt if there are going to be that many. And if you sing something that... Uh, that they don't know, you may put yourself in jeopardy. And so she was the one who started the, the uh, me, having people hear me sing a mezzo aria on oh, the yes. Godfrey show, which was Mon Coeur, you know, from Samson and Delilah. Right. Because it had become a popular song during that time by somebody, I think, but Herbert Jeffrey and so forth. And he sang it was in, in English, but it was the music of uh, the, the Monker, she said, this they know, and we can cut it in half, and it's a time limit, and so forth, that they need, and so forth, that she was absolutely correct. And you were the winner, and of yes. course, that was a big, big victory that for you. That was a very big victory, because that victory led me to the Juilliard School. What was your experience at Juilliard like? Do you feel very positive about yes, that? Yes, very positive. I never in my whole life, up to that point, had even thought that I would... Uh, you know, be a part of a music school, and especially one as famous as the Juilliard School of Music. It's right around that time, I think, you meet Leontine Price for the first time, someone with whom you would yes. sing later on. Yes, I met her at a poetry reading of a, of a mutual friend, Roscoe Lee Brown, 
uh, at the, I lived at the International House, and he said to me one day, he said, uh, at the reading tonight, I want you to meet my friend, uh, Leontine Price, and this is where we first met, at that, um, at that uh, poetry reading of Roscoe Lee Brown. Hmm. And uh, we're still friends to this day. In fact, I just saw her uh, a few weeks ago when we were both at the Corelli. You know, she made her debut at the Met on the same night that Corelli made Oh, yes, his. they just had a luncheon to honor him. That's it, and so I was there. I had not gone to the others. I had not been able to, but I wanted to do this. I had sung with, with Franco twice, hmm. and um, I wanted to be there. And I saw Leontine and lots of other friends and mm, so forth. So we'll wonderful. get together uh, when I'm in town again, you know, to have lunch and so forth and things like that, which Very we haven't good. done over the years. Uh, one of the experiences that you talk about so movingly in this book is 1956, when you attend the Metropolitan Opera and see the great Maria Callas make her debut there in yes. Bellini's Norma, which, of course, would go on to be one of your most important opera roles yourself. And at certain points in your career, you would actually be favorably compared with the great with Maria Callas. Yes. Uh, I imagine you remember that experience of seeing her on the stage of the Met like it was yesterday. Like it was yesterday, because up to that point, I didn't like her voice. And, uh, you oh, know you mean how, you'd heard recordings? Huh? Because of the recordings I had heard. I had a room, a person who lived next door to me at the um, I house, the international house, and she used to just blast the holes with the sound. And I used to get a, uh, really very upset because I was a Tebaldi and so forth fan at the time. And so, but I also thought this way very early on. I said, it's not really a great idea to, to, to criticize uh, something Something must be going on here with this, this lady. She is becoming very, very famous. You have to go. When I read that she was going to make her debut, I said, I am going to be in the audience because you cannot criticize until you really see for yourself. And uh, I went. And it, how can I say, it verified what I had always thought about. My mother started going back to my parents again about the the importance of words, the meaning of what you're singing about. Not that other people had not uh, before her, uh, before, you know, I had gone to the Met before uh, as, as a student and had my score desks and so forth, and there were people who were very wonderful singers and so forth. But what she did was she was so attentive to certain kinds of details, and you knew that she knew everything that was going on under her, uh, all of the orchestral music and so forth that was going on under her, the underpinning, she, you just knew that. And I, could, I always say I can't tell you to this day what she did on the stage, but what I did get was this sense that she absolutely was in the moment at all times. She, the phrasing, the picking up of a word here and there in a sentence that she might be uh, singing, you know, in a phrase, and so forth. And this was the kind of thing that I had been looking for in that year that I had been at Juilliard. And for me, it was a breakthrough. I said, this, if I should sing opera, I want, I want to pay great attention to not only the music and singing beautifully, but I want to take a lot, pay a lot of attention to the words. And this is what she did for me. Hmm. My teacher didn't quite agree. She thought she was old-fashioned. She said, ah, 
she's very old-fashioned. And I, <laughs> my answer to that was, well, she might be old-fashioned. I don't care. But what she did was she gave me a total experience. Mm. And that was something that I would never forget. And years later, of course, we did meet. Mm. And what a thrill that must have that been. That was a great thrill. We're speaking with Shirley Verrett, and we're talking about the uh, recently published autobiography she has written called I Never Walked Alone, the autobiography of an American singer. Um, in part two of the book, you uh, at this point in time, you have uh, secured a divorce from your first husband, James Carter, yes. and your career is, is uh, really taking off in exciting ways. But I want you to tell our listeners about uh, your encounter with the great conductor Leopold Stokowski <laughs> and the extraordinary gesture of support which he extended to you in the wake of a really painful incident which occurred uh, with the Houston Symphony Orchestra. This is a powerful story, and I'm so glad that you tell it. Yes, it, uh, it was very, very interesting that uh, he wanted me to sing. I sang for him. As you know, people sang for him and played for him and so forth. And he would put, he had a huge book that he wrote the names down and the ones he liked and the ones he didn't like. And he liked me very much and asked me to sing with him. He was going to do the Gura Lida in uh, Houston and wanted me to do one of the roles, the Waldhauber, in that work. And then this Houston power set B said, no, no, we cannot have a black person do this. It won't work. This was already, what, 1959? The struggle yes. had begun already, you know, the black struggle. And uh, he was wonderful. Uh, uh, Stokey said to me, he called me up and he said, look, I fought, a, I fought many, ba many battles in my life. I'm at the age now that I just am a little bit tired of doing that. But let me tell you something. This is not going to keep me from hiring you. You will sing with me one day. And that one day came sooner than I even thought. Well, I think I, that's so wonderful, too. I mean, you could imagine a conductor in that situation saying that and maybe even hoping it might be true, but for whatever reason it might not come true. But in this case, it, it did. did. Because he was invited back to the Philadelphia Orchestra, and I always get these numbers mixed up, whether it was 17 or 19 years, I don't remember. And I was the... the uh, I, I, this I can hardly believe to this day that he chose me as his soloist to sing when he made his return to the orchestra. We should I mean, mention... incredible. You know, when you think about it, it's incredible. He could have had anyone. And he we could should, have had anyone. We should mention he was the conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra for about 30 years or so, and a much-beloved figure, and it had been almost 20 years since he'd been gone. Uh -huh. So this was a triumphant return to True. the city for him, and he could have had his pick of probably any singer oh. or instrumentalist on the planet and chose you still so young and relatively unknown That's for right. such an occasion. That is it. I mean, can, can you imagine that? This is why I, in my, in my thinking and why the book is called I Never Walked Alone, uh, yes, it, you know, it, it brings you back to You Never Walk Alone that I sang in Carousel, uh, the Rogers and Hammerstein. But I Never Walked Alone, it, it, it really means that. All these kinds of things that you would say now, why would he choose this young singer, you know, why? Hmm. And I feel, this is where I feel, and I talk a lot about God being, you know, God being in my life and his arms. I always like that thing about his arms always continually around me and made me make many 
bad ones also. Hmm. But the good decisions, especially at the beginning of the career, and uh, this is one of them. Hmm. I mean, purely and simply, this was one of them. Sakowski uh, asking this student, because I was still going to march that spring, the next spring, with, uh, with my class to get out of Juilliard. So I was sort of one of those, uh, the professional students. I was in the school, but I was always doing recitals and so forth outside. Right. Yeah. Well, a wonderful, wonderful day for you. In uh, 1959, you do something else that's very interesting, which also sets your career forward, and that is when you make your uh, recital debut in Europe. And I want you to tell our listeners a story which you recount in the, in the book about uh, a moment during that recital tour in Europe when you sort of stopped and realized just how much you loved your country despite uh, all the unfairness which mm-hmm. you had experienced there. Yes, I was in Germany. I was in um, Cologne actually singing at the Opera House a uh, role of a, of a gypsy in a, a work called uh, Rasputin's Tod by Nicholas Nabokov and um, we were in the canteen, as I remember talking, you know, and there were returned veterans and so forth who were back singing again. And we were just speaking about things and so forth. And the, th- the, the subject turned to blacks in America and how terrible it was that they did this to the black people and the da-da-da. They were going on and on about this and thinking that, well, you know, here's this black person. She's really going to like what we're saying. I don't know what they thought, but I really became, I was really very upset. And I said, at that time, my German was pretty, pretty good. And I said in German, and what about your Hitler? And what he did, he tried to exterminate a whole uh, uh, culture of people, you know, besides many others that he didn't feel were fit. That stopped the conversation dead. And it was at that moment. That moment only, because as I had said for, to you before, I had this sort of burning, uh, intense kind of uh, anger that sort of was always below the, the, the surface about prejudice and how stupid it all was. Um, but at that moment, I must say, I became an American. Mm. At that moment, in my heart, I said, yes, we have a lot that we're trying to do now. It's beginning. And we're trying to do something about it. And uh, therefore, but what you did here, I mean, you can't. I said, how can you How can you even compare? I said, even I can't compare. Even I said, yes, there were the lynchings and blah, 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 all of those horrible things that happened. But there was not, at least in most of America, the, the idea that all of the blacks were going to be exterminated. You know, we didn't have that. I mean, the southern part of the country where there was the slavery and so forth, and not that the north was all so, so, so squeaky clean, <laughs> but at least there was a difference and that you could live a better life in a certain part of the United States. So they were not trying to, you know, get rid of every black person. Mm. And uh, when I said that, they, they, they became very, very quiet. And I became an American on that day. Wow. A real American on that day. About the time that your stage career uh, uh, in opera begins, you also undertake uh, what I think had to be an extraordinary uh, tour of the Soviet Union. The year is 1963, and the Cold War is at the height of its intensity. Um, Weren't you scared? (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I wasn't scared. It was just a very different 
and a very rewarding experience in many, many ways, especially when I was on the stage of uh, the stages, you know, of, at the uh, opera companies and also doing my recitals because that's really what it was. I did two performances of Carmen, but the, it was really about recitals, which mm. was my first love for a long time. Uh, it, was, it, it, kept me, it kept me, how can I say, uh, disciplined and so on. Uh, it was the, the thing that made me cut the, 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 the tour up short by three concerts was that I caught a terrible cold and had to come home. Because at that particular time in the Soviet Union, the then Soviet Union, you couldn't eat as well as you can now. I mean, now that it's Russia and so forth, I've been back. And it, uh, you, there are hotels and, I mean, the, the cuisine is, uh, you know, continental. It's everything. It's marvelous. Not that their food was not marvelous, but you never knew if you were going to get the same meal twice. Hmm. I would order eggs one day, and they would be perfectly done, and then another chef would come on who had his own idea about doing the eggs hmm. or whatever, and you wouldn't get the same. So I began to uh, get a little weak, and I didn't have juices. I had to go to the embassy and get orange juice and so forth and so on. And that made me uh, uh, a little bit uncomfortable. And it was a strange kind of thing, living in a, uh, being in a country where people... I did, at that moment, also make comparison, comparisons with what was happening here in the United States. Hmm. Uh, for what I saw there and what we had here in the United States, about, as far as freedom is concerned, and especially um, after the Civil Rights Movement and so forth, uh, for the blacks and so forth, uh, 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 it, it was just not believable what I saw in, 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 the, uh, in the Soviet Union. Kind of put things in and perspective. And they made believe they didn't have slums and all of that, and I had my, my interpreter uh, take me. I said, look, I want to see the real, the, the, the true Russia. I want the, the, the Soviet Union here in Moscow. That's where we were when I said that. And I said, you're showing me everything, but I want to see where the poor people live and so forth and so on. And so one day she took me on a bus, and I could see people down by the river uh, washing clothes on the rocks and so forth as if they were in another, another century and so forth and so on. You know what I mean? Hmm. Uh, I always felt that until I could see both sides of a place, I didn't only want to see the ritzy side. I wanted to see how the, the, the middle class, and the, if there were, if that was any, uh, uh, such a thing as a middle class there, but I wanted to see both sides. And at that point, and that's not just in the Soviet Union at the time, but it was almost anywhere I would go, wanted to see both sides, and then I could make up my mind about uh, the condition of the place I was in. Hmm. We're speaking with Shirley Verrett, and uh, she is the author of a new autobiography called I Never Walked Alone, the autobiography of an American singer. Well, we need to begin talking about your career on the opera stage, yes. which, of course, was really like none other. And uh, you enjoyed such splendid uh, success on the opera stage. Uh, what was it about opera singing that set it apart from concert singing or recital singing for you? Well, of course, all of the costumes and the makeup and everything else that, uh, you know, doing things on a kind of a grand, uh, grander scale. Because I always felt in my recitals that uh, I was singing little operas. Each, each song was a little, you know, there was an opus and so on, which was wonderful training for me. But no, it's the orchestra. It's the, the, whole, the whole thing. Working not alone with your accompanist only 
or string quartet or something on stage, but having this this huge assemblage of people mm. that you're working with. Well, and it's interesting in the world of opera, we're sometimes talking about very complicated people. <laughs> yeah, uh, and and um, you tell more than a few stories about that. And of course, it's fair to say, and you're very honest about this. You yourself were one of those complicated creatures of the stage, uh, in which sometimes uh, turbulence breaks out in rehearsals and, and, and so on. That's right. First of all, tell us about uh, the, your decision to be very honest in this book, in talking about tantrums and flare-ups and disagreements and so on. I mean, you could have made the choice to, uh, to sort leave of... It out. Yeah, to leave that out. But instead, uh, we, we are treated very honestly to everything that happened uh, in, in your career, including the moments that you probably wish had not happened. No, of course. And actually, I think in the book, there may be three uh, occasions like that. And I also take responsibility for when I was wrong. I always felt that it... I always feel that it is so terrible for people to always blame everything on someone else. Oh, well, if he hadn't, if she hadn't done this, I wouldn't have done that. No. Take the responsibility. I did it. I'm sorry that I did it. And let's go on now with, 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 with life. And let's see if I can't uh, not do it. So I did three of these, the, these uh, uh, illustrated three because I didn't have a lot of conflict on the stage, actually with uh, colleagues and so forth, but there were three instances that people knew about, had been written about. Uh, I'm told that the one instance that, that the, uh, about the tenor had in his book written and had not called my name, and I decided to, to call his name because I love him very, 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 very much. Was this uh, John Vickers? That was John Vickers. Uh, he had been such a wonderful friend to me when I made my debut at Covent Garden. Uh, uh, as Ulrika, which I never sang again. I recorded it, and I had promised I would never sing again, and only sang it because it was time to have a debut at the Royal Opera House. And uh, he was so kind, I mean, so helpful and so forth. And then all of a sudden, when we came here for the Carmen, this particular incident happened. This is your uh, debut at the Met, by the, the way. debut at the Met, you know, with the Carmen. I think it was in a dress rehearsal, wasn't it? It was in a dress rehearsal. You, uh, you did something that caught him by surprise. He kind yes. of flared up yes. and uh, in, a very, in a way that really embarrassed you and angered you. And it, yes, and it was really, they said that a lot of people said, well, a real Carmen <laughs> possibly would have flared back. But I had too many things to think about at that particular moment. Here I am. I, you know, I don't know how many other black uh, African Americans think about this kind of thing. But it was the way I was brought up, and it was also uh, I was an African American. I did not want to do something that would put a smear on 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 others who came after me because of me really flaring and saying some of the things that I would love to have said, which I did say backstage. Mm. But that's <laughs> so, why you stomped off. You yeah, removed yourself right. and had to be, uh, Rudolph Bing had to really do some fast talking to... Uh, to get me back on the stage the, and so forth. But at this particular time in life, I mean, John, and I uh, made up in um, when we were doing the Trojans together, and we have not looked back since. Hmm. And some the reason I did that was because I did not want my book, first of all. I did not want my book. So many things were taken out that I would just talk and talk because, you know, Christopher Brooke uh, was the, the biographer. He was the one who had to write all these stories that I was telling. Yes. And he is actually the one also, I have to give him a lot of credit, he was the one who thought, 
we didn't know what we wanted to call the book. I had all kinds of ideas, one from my niece uh, in California and so forth, and he was the one who said, what do you think about I Never Walked Alone? I said, let's think about that a little bit. And I thought about it, and I said, you know, on many levels, this is absolutely the truth. When, whether we think about it or not, you're not in this world, and you do not. There's this, this interdependence, uh, interdependence uh, and so forth, whether you want to agree to uh, about that or not, where people give you a, a leg up and so on. Now, I, I went off the point a little bit, didn't I? We were talking about saying, I did not want the book to be a book of gossip, because I know a lot mm. of people, when they pick up the book, they, they will possibly want to read a little bit more about, oh, this happened and this happened that day. And, and I didn't so like her, and she did that to and me. And she or did I... that, <laughs> and also, no, there were, uh, uh, in my life anyway, it was a minor thing in the opera world. Actually, there was more that went on before I was in the opera world uh, uh, that uh, disappointed me and so forth. My hmm. first year at Tanglewood, I loved Boris Goldovsky. I loved that experience. But there were people who hadn't even begun to have a career yet. They were trying to have a career and all of this backbiting and so forth that went on. What it did for me was for me to pull in my reins and say, I'm going to protect myself because I cannot have a career and be around all of this negativity. Mm. And it wasn't everybody. Don't get me wrong. By long shot, it was not everyone. But those few apples that spoil you know, the, the, the barrel. Right. Well, and, and those stories, they, they, people love to tell them, and uh, they're tempting to tell, and that's one reason why the public gets this uh, view of opera singers as, uh, as a bunch of, of big-headed uh, egomaniacs that just want their way all the time, when in fact the opera world most of the time uh, operates on, on a much more smoothly. civilized level. Very smoothly. And the ones, let me just say this, when I knew there were people that I could not work with because of past repu the, uh, reputation, uh, reputation. I would then, at that moment, when I would be asked, you know, about something, or to, to think, who else is going to be in the cast? And thank God I had the opportunity and uh, was able to do that because everyone cannot. Hmm. They would tell me who the other people would be. My management would tell me. And then if it was some person that I thought would be difficult because I don't like, when I'm there for rehearsal, I'm there for work and work in a very, very wonderfully open uh, open way, not sitting on, well, how can I get this person and how can I upstage? Don't want any of that. Let's all get up on the stage and do what we can do the best. And in peace. Very good. I like in that. In peace. I don't like that. And so what I did... I would just say when I knew there would be other people in the cast that had reputations of not being very good colleagues, I would just say no. And, the, you know, the, the management would tell the, the opera house or something like that I was not available or whatever, whatever. But this is the way I protected myself through my life. So I did not go through a lot of the who shot John <laughs> because I went home. They always, at rehearsals, they, I didn't go a lot to dinners because that's the next thing that possibly you'll ask about my allergies and so forth. I had to really take care of myself, and I didn't have time to wear myself out talking uh, after having a day of rehearsals and then going out to dinner and blah, 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 and they thought for a while there at a lot of the opera houses that I was a recluse or 
something always aloof mm. until opening night. And then at, because we would have about three or four days all, off before the next performance. Then it was the, time to party, huh? Then it was time for me, and then, of course, I couldn't keep my mouth closed, and that was the whole <laughs> point. I was the one who would have caused the problem because I talk so much. Right. And uh, they would say, oh, Shirley, you're a lot of fun. We didn't know that you were so much fun. I said, no, not while I'm working. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, you, uh, you have touched on something which, of course, was uh, a, a mark of your career for a few years when you really battled uh, some persistent and very frustrating health problems, yes. which in, in certain instances would, would, would keep you from being able to, to, to sing your Do best. My best. One of the things that's odd about that to me is that uh, you, know, you were clearly somebody who had access to... Uh, to very good medical care and very good medical professions, professionals, but for some reason this had people stumped, and this was not correctly diagnosed for many, many years. Of course it was not. Many, many years. Uh, you know how it is. You look so healthy. Blood tests are, t- tests are taken, and they come back and they say, no, oh, no, this is all right, this is a little low, but no, this is fine. And I looked always very healthy. Uh, and I was with the exception of uh, having an allergy. And it wasn't until actually 1978, now that's uh, uh, getting into the point of the middle of my career, that uh, I found out what it was and started to work on it. And I'm just very happy that I did. And I feel that all that I've gone through with this uh, in my life, in fact, I took a lot of that out of the book because that I said I'm even bored by hearing about my, <laughs> my, my your oh, medical no. maladies. Out, 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 out. Yeah. Like, let's take, let's clean this up you, uh, because no one really wants to listen to a day-to-day uh, uh, recital of, of uh, you know, and I didn't feel good this day and so on. You know, so, uh, I it makes me uh, as a teacher very aware of my students, and I try to give them advice, not to be their doctors, but to try to keep them away from overdoing things like antibiotics, which were given to me for a cold when I first went to New York because I caught a cold coming from California, new climate. And that was, that was the beginning. And it, it doesn't catch up to, uh, to you until you begin to get older and things begin to happen in different places. And so I said, look, when I teach, talk to my students, I said, if you really have to, uh, to have an antibiotic because it's for an infection or uh, whatever, bacteria, and then do it. But then I've also uh, given them things that I have learned to help to protect themselves no. you, uh, for the good bacteria to be put back into the system and so forth. And I think I touch on that uh, in, the, in the book. But it, if, if you could say that maybe I went through this so that I could then become uh, my own teacher with God always over me and around me, his arms around me, to take me through uh, these, this particular area of my life so that I would be very, very much able, better able, when it came to doing something I didn't want to do. I always said I would never teach, and I'm doing it, and I love it very, very much. And this was quite a learning experience so that gave you great experience for, yes. for what you've gone on to do. One of the things when you talk about some of these years where your health was, uh, your vocal health was a bit precarious, where you yes. were really battling these things and not really knowing what was going on, you, you tell us about some of these 
patches of, of performances where things were very, very difficult for you, things like the Fidelio at the Met and so on, that oh, was yeah. very difficult, a performance of Macbeth at one point where you essentially had to speak the entire performance. That's you were in such ill health. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I, well, a couple thoughts came to me. One of them was sort of like uh, your honesty in talking about other aspects of the career, that you're very honest in talking about these kind of moments. And I also am struck then by the also almost the irony of your of the title of the book, in that when you are on stage at the Met and you are singing Leonora's big aria from Act One of Fidelio, and you are in ill health and mm-hmm. struggling to <laughs> struggling to survive, <laughs> um, in a sense, you are very much alone. Oh, yeah. uh, and I wonder what is the experience like? What was the experience like to be in the midst of some of those? really tremendously challenging performances where you knew in terms of your health that you were far from optimum form and trying to succeed as best you could. What was that experience like? And what was it like to relive those moments as you wrote this book? Actually, when I came to that part of the book, it was very, very traumatic for me because I could feel and remember. Because sometimes, you know, you felt like, I shouldn't do this performance. But I feel that I can do it, you know, technically, it'll be okay in certain places. And you got up on the stage, and when you were there, and things would begin to, dis- how can I say, disintegrate, <laughs> it wasn't going as well as you thought it could have gone. And you start to flagellate yourself inside by saying, why did you do it? Why didn't you stay home? I talk to my students about this a lot. Just stay home because these people paid. This is this this is the thing. The agony when I had to cancel, or when I was on the stage, and then you start to think these people paid a lot of money to hear me do a good, to hear all of the singers do a good performance, and it is not fair to them when you're not in the form that you could be in. But you want to be there anyway because you were not badly enough off. Not to be there, you understand? Mm, yes. So it was always a terrible thing for me. I mean, really, some of the, the nights that I had to cancel, I would not want to look at the clock at the house. I would do everything in my power, you know, not to uh, be thinking about when the curtain was rising and mm. so forth and what scene I would be in. I would read, I would go someplace else, uh, anything to get away from from the knowledge that I had let people down. How much singing now, if any, are you doing? I sing every day. Uh, I really do. I vocalize every day because a lot of the time, uh, I will tell them exactly, the tongue is not doing this, the palate's not up, whatever, and so on. But every once in a while, I will sing it. And I say, now, don't copy what I'm, don't copy the voice, just copy and see what, 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 what I'm doing. And it sometimes that's the thing that's, oh, I got it now, mm. you know. And so I vocalize on my way to school every day. I do my lip trills, you know, that's with the lip going, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And then just singing scales and so forth. And interestingly enough, I never did do any f- farewell uh, recitals or anything like that because of uh, getting a little bit even more short of breath and so forth. And not knowing when this 
coating would get under the chords that I did. I couldn't sing my best. But there are things that I do now that I, it's interesting to say this, that because I'm not having to do it, there are things that I do now and many arias that I never sang, but I learned them because I gave them uh, uh, to my students, that I sing like Dove Sono. I had never sung that. Morte mm. Amor, I had never sung that. Uh, the Rusalka, um, Song to the Moon. Um, you sort of name it, Quando Menvo. I remember my teacher in California had given me that, but that didn't, it didn't appeal to me at the time, and so forth. But doing things now that I, did, I never did in, in, in when I was having a career, and doing very, very well. I would ask my husband, how, is it, how does it sound? I said, it feels really great. He said, it sounds really great. <laughs> Too bad that you don't, you know, you, you don't feel free to do any uh, uh, recitals to say bye-bye-bye. Hmm. And I said, no, because if on a certain moment, a certain day, that I say I'm going to do this and something happens with the, the phlegm and all the rest of the stuff that can wreck you, I said I wouldn't want to do that. Mm. I would rather just teach my students and then go on to doing some acting if I can. Do you uh, look back on your opera career with uh, with any regrets in terms of, of of roles that you wish you had found time to do? Actually, not. Not too much. Most huh? of the time, with the exception of things like Norma and things like that, or the exception of uh, uh, doing my one and only performance of. Uh, of Desdemona and so on. <clears throat> Roles like um, Lady Macbeth, I mean, I had to, I had to be talked into three uh, three years. It took Carbado three years to talk me into doing it. And I said, what was wrong with my head when I thought, <laughs> think about it, it now? Tur- yeah, it turned out to be one of your greatest yes. successes. and I said, why did I, I said, well, it's a dark opera, and I've seen the play and so forth, and why do I want to do this? I did not own the score. I had a whole lot of scores, lots and lots and lots and lots. But did not own the the Macbeth, and so he came to dinner one night, and he said, "Shirley, would you just go and get a score and look at it and hmm. and taste?" Hmm. And I did, and I that's what made me decide. Yes, I would do. Did that answer your question? No, I I went around Jack's. Bar you don't you don't have many regrets then about uh, you you did just no, about everything you wanted to do. <laughs> I did about everything I wanted to do. There were things that my friend. Uh, God rest his soul, John Arduin had wanted me to do because he wanted me to do all of the roles that that uh, Kalas had done ah. and so forth and so on. And he had a great point there, but uh, some of them I didn't feel, you know, suited me. One of the only roles that I, I think of where I think, boy, this could have been a real Shirley Verrett role, would be uh, the title role of John Carlo Minotti's The Medium. Did anyone ever offer that to you? No, it was talked about. Mm. And I, 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 I turned that one down also. Mm. Yeah, but a fabulous part. Yeah. Fabulous. Really great. Really I wonder great. what would happen if uh, the Met or San Francisco or somebody called up and asked you if you would be interested in coming back to sing a role like Madame de Croissy in Dialogues of the Carmelites. You, of course, enjoyed a great success at the, at the Met singing uh, Madame de Duin in the Dialogues of the Carmelites. Uh, but would the you, great role was that is the other. Would the you? One, what's that? The, the great part is what you the one that you just named with the great death scene. Yes. Would you uh, ever consider something like that back to the opera stage in a, in a role like that? That uh, or do you feel like that door is very firmly shut behind you? I think it is. 
I think it really uh, shut behind. If I would do anything at this moment, and I'm hoping that I will, it will be going in the other direction of what I thought of as my second career being the actress. Mm. You know? And possibly being, you know, they always have me humming something or singing a little tune here and there. But uh, I know when it's time to, to let loose, just let it go. Right. Yeah. I remember watching on television the uh, that glittering gala at the Met for James Levine's 25th anniversary, and I was so pleased to see the beautiful, radiant face of Shirley Verrett yes. up with all of those singers at, at the end. Yes, I had been invited to do this. I, uh, For some reason, they did. But because of my, my kind of uh, strange relationship with the Met in those years and so forth, I was not asked to be one of the singers, but they did invite me. And I said, you know, I, I wanted to be up there with uh, with my... I think I was st- uh, standing next to uh, uh, Fonchada. Mm. I love her very much, and so forth. And I don't know who was on my other side, but I really enjoyed being on the stage. And you saw me? Oh, yes. It's very uh, very clear in the, uh, in, in the, uh, in the telecast. Actually, <laughs> Kiri Tekanawa looks back behind her, and, and there you are, right over uh, <laughs> Kiri Tekanawa's shoulder. But I thought, what a, what a great place uh, for you to be because of all of the great performances which you were able to deliver, yes. uh, not only on the stage of the Met, of course, but on opera stages yes. uh, around the world. Well, I was very happy about my, my uh, opera career and the career in general, to tell you the truth. Mm. Well, on behalf of everyone who has enjoyed your career over the years, uh, my thanks to you for writing so movingly about it in this autobiography. It's not all singers that take the time to do that, and I'm, I'm glad that you did that, and certainly glad that we had the opportunity to talk about your extraordinary life and career and your book uh, on our morning show today. I thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you so much also. I mean, it's been, I've, I've really enjoyed your questions. Very good. I really have enjoyed them. Well, thank you again. Yes, okay. And to finish out this morning show honoring Shirley Barrett, here is a memento from one of the greatest triumphs of her long career, 1976, and her first performance of the murderously difficult role of Lady Macbeth in Giuseppe Verdi's opera, Macbeth, at La Scala in Milan, Italy. It was an extraordinary triumph. Here are the closing moments of the Act One aria sung by Lady Macbeth, and again, this is the great Shirley Verrett.